Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, growing your own fruit and vegetables, pest control, garden design and ideas for containers and small spaces. Plus expert gardening advice throughout the year. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors, based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up, expert RHS advisors answer your seasonal gardening questions. We continue our series on gardening essentials, techniques every gardener should master, and equipment we should all own. This time, we're discussing essential tools for the greenhouse and for houseplant growers. And, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, let's join the teams in the gardens and hear about some of the tasks they're undertaking this month. I'm Douglas Mackay. I'm the team leader for Fruit, Vegetables and Herbs at RHS Wisley. In the fruit garden, I'd say definitely the trained forms that we've got of apples and pears um, and the vines that are around the fruit demonstration area looking really nice. They're all looking neat and tidy after their summer prune um, a month or so back. And they're definitely something to look at and the herbs are still clinging on, looking fantastic over in the herb garden, um, and you get some lovely smells, especially on a cold morning. Okay, so for the summer fruiting raspberries, the floricanes, it's really time now to make sure all the fruited canes are cut back and lacing in the kind of the next year's canes ready for next year, keeping them nicely spaced. Normally we say about fist apart, um, does really well. And then they're all nice and neat and tidy for the winter and they'll do much better against any diseases and get all ready to get going in the next spring. Autumn mulch always does well to keep in the moisture over the winter and give a little bit of frost protection to the rootstocks and just keeps it neat and tidy over the winter. Then in spring you haven't got you know a load of weeding to do and gives you a nice fresh start ready to go. For the floricanes it's literally just to cut out the fruited canes um, and we leave the first year. So you'll tell the second year canes they'll have had the leftovers of the fruiting stalks on but also they'll have ripened up they'll be quite woody and they'll be flaking at the base so we just chop those out and leave the green canes that we want and tie them in and anything that we don't need if we've got too many canes in an area normally perhaps three or four in a plant nicely spaced and then we can just cut anything else out strawberries well it's just coming to the end of the time where you can take runners from your existing strawberries so we're doing that in propagation at the moment they've taken run us all off our strawberries um, to bulk up our varieties for next year um, so that's definitely a job that you can do at the moment it's quite simple with strawberries if you just if you're cutting off you've got the runner and leave perhaps two or three inches of stem above the runner and um, so you've got like a hook you've got the young strawberry plant and um, with the adventitious roots at the bottom and then you've got the, like, this leg of um, stalk and then you can use that to just hook it into the soil into your pot and that will keep it nice and secure while it roots into the medium and then once it's got all its roots down it'll just keep it nicely over the winter and be ready to plant out. There's all kinds of ones available. We really like clary at the moment um, which is reasonably new to the market and that's tasting really nice but also there's the old favourites. There's things like honey eye and Cambridge favourite and also do really well Um, but it's finding the right one for your site as well because they can be quite specific. You can find more information about plants and all aspects of gardening techniques on the advice pages of the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice.
I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Remember, as a member of the RHS, you get free entry to all four RHS gardens and an informative monthly magazine, The Garden, which is packed full of beautiful photographs and useful information. Members also get free advice on any gardening problem from the team. You can ask questions by phone, post or email or in person at any one of the RHS flower shows. Every month on the RHS Gardening Podcast, members of the RHS Gardening Advice Team join us to answer some of the questions they've received recently. My name's Lee Hunt. I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. I'm Tony Dickerson and I'm a horticultural advisor here at RHS Wisley. My name is Guy Barter. I'm on the advice team here at Wisley. Uh, B. Noe um, has emailed in and uh, Mr. or Mrs. Noe or Ms. Noe, whatever, um, says that uh, their passion flower is laden with orange fruit this year, more than ever before. Uh, are they going to have to be chucked out or, or is there a culinary use for these highly decorative fruits? Lee, you're a bon viveur. What do you reckon? Well, I'm assuming that rather than the, the Passiflora edulis, which is the one that would be grown commercially and often in warmer, better climates than the, the UK, it's probably one of the um, varieties or the species called Passiflora carulia, um, which is has a fantastic uh, flower. And it's the very traditional sort of passion flower look with a cross through the middle of the, the blue. And you get these sort of little... Um, blue bits poking out above cream petals as well so really attractive and then they they are followed by fruits initially of course they're green and then when they start to become really ripe they become orange so they look very tempting but they're not the edulis type and they're not as such good eating so um, you can have a go at eating them but you need to be careful they do need to be ripe for a start as they can cause dizziness and nausea and then if you're willing to take that risk, um, what you're actually looking for is to cut them into, you don't want to eat the seeds or the skin, but the pink pulp. And then you could, that's the bit that is edible. Um, I haven't actually tried it myself, but I'm reliably informed that it's just not very good eating. It's just not a very good flavour. So if you're interested, the, there is lots of potential to have a go here, um, but you do need to take a bit of care and you do need to just focus on getting that pink pulp rather than the rest of it. Well, as everyone knows, I've got a spirit of an enormous spirit of self-sacrifice where the knowledge of um, the gardening public is concerned. So I've taken upon it upon myself to consume some of these egg-shaped orange fruits. And um, they are, so we say, insipid, uh, but sweet. They are probably not going to set the world on fire, but as you can tell, I have survived and um, there was no ill effect. I think it, but, um, the important thing is they should be perfectly ripe and they can take quite a long time to ripen as the coolness of autumn approaches. We have a letter here from uh, a Mr. E. Islam from Chelmsford. My pear tree hasn't produced any flowers or fruit this year. Last year it had about 10. It's four years old. But there are also orange spots on some of the leaves, which are also curling in at the side slightly. Uh, well, Lee, a, a four-year-old pear, would we expect a bit better performance from it? It should be beginning to perform better, but uh, we often find with young fruit trees that they can take um, up to five or more years to really begin to grow away. And this is true of apples as well. The, nowadays, thankfully, the, the sort of apples that we can buy on 
good root stocks means that they do fruit much quicker than they used to. There used to be this phrase about pears for your heirs, but thankfully that we don't have to wait that long now. It's not for your children. But basically it is still trying to get its roots down at this sort of three, four year period. It will depend what sort of weather conditions and soil conditions it's encountering as well. So just seeing that it's Chelmsford, it's possible it might be the, the heavier clay soils of Essex. And that's always more difficult for tree roots to get established into. So if we've had a dry part of the last summer and the soil is more tricky like this, then yes, we might find that it didn't form very good flower buds for this year. Flower buds are formed in the previous seasons. So typically at that July to September, the weather conditions are important. So if it's very dry, it's worth watering. If you're feeding, though, it's still one for spring. So it's more sort of late February, early March time to encourage good fruiting. But the, the flower buds would have been formed last summer. They would come out the following spring. So really, your hope is already for next year now. And uh, it's been a tricky year, but we have had quite a good bit of rain in August that has moistened the soil. So with any luck, those flower buds will be beginning to form. And they, they are plumper, whereas the uh, leaf buds are much thinner. So you might even now be able to go in and have a look and see whether you've got the buds there for next year. Mm. Now, uh, on my pear tree, w- wonderful green shiny leaves on pears. And I, I've got some of these orange spots as well, Guy, and they, they really look really attractive. But um, I guess they're not <laughs> such good news. Uh, no, these orange spots are the sign of uh, pear rust. Um, pear rust is a fungus disease and the spots are really rather amazing they're orange on top but underneath they're kind of got kind of tentacles and it looks like it's some kind of little bug or a gore but it is actually the way the the fungus works and rust fungi have got a very strange life cycle Uh, the spores that are produced from these orange spots and the tentacles on the pear tree will only infect the juniper and the juniper is then infected and develops some um, large, distorted, really grotesque shoots, which uh, send out lots of spores the following spring. And these spores will infect the pear tree. And that's the way it goes. So somewhere in Chelmsford, someone has got a juniper that's infected with um, pear rust. There's nothing you can do about that because you can hardly search your neighbour's gardens and pull up their juniper trees. Um, and unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about the um, the pear rust either, because all fungicides for applying to fruit trees are no longer approved for garden use. So you have to put up with the, the pear rust. And uh, fortunately, the pear rust has only cosmetic damage and uh, shouldn't uh, cause a heavy loss of yield when your pear finally begins to flower and, uh, and set fruit. And I would observe that Chelmsford in Essex it's got a particularly good climate for pear trees, so I, all other things being equal, your pear tree should be um, highly successful. So Mr B. Bruford has emailed in, I grew lots of courgettes this year. They've almost finished fruiting. When should I cut them back or dig them out? Do they need to die back first and allow the nutrients back into the soil? What do you think about that one? When, when is the right time to give up on courgettes? Well, I think now with the, the colder nights... Uh, even where the the fruit are actually pollinated and they do need pollination by insects and again the insects are beginning to uh, shut down for the the autumn um 
if it's cold nights, the fruits will not develop very well. So just be guided by that. Once they uh, seem to fail to develop, I would pull up the plants. Um, there's nothing to be gained by waiting for them to die right back or whatever. And uh, they can be consigned to the compost heap and the, the ground got ready for uh, future crops uh, next year. And um, with nutrients, well, it's talked about leaving things like beans sometimes in the ground. What do you think about the the relative merits of leaving both courgettes and any or any other crops in the ground, Guy? Well, this is a very interesting question. The thinking of this has changed considerably recently. Um, beans, um, yes, they fix nitrogen and on their roots are little nodules. And in those nodules are bacteria that uh, use sugar from the bean to power the turning of nitrogen from the air into plant food. So there's good um, good reasons for leaving pea and bean seed. That's broad bean, by the way. Um, French beans and runner beans are nowhere near as effective. But leaving pea and broad bean roots in the soil um, will help feed future crops. Other plants uh, don't fix nitrogen, but it's well known that plants growing in the soil improves the soil. Bare soil is always deteriorating soil. So nowadays, um, all other things being equal, like there's not too much disease there, and courgettes can be martyrs to powdery mildew, um, all other things being equal, uh, leave the plants growing until the frost takes them, and then just gather them up and compost them. You're always going to get powdery mildew, I'm afraid, where you grow courgettes, so there's no great advantage in um, burning them as such. You can always tell if you've got powdery mildew because it's a nasty, white, slightly grainy covering on the leaves, particularly the older leaves. Happily, seeds companies now offer ones that are tolerant of powdery mildew, so they they can generally um, rub along quite well with a bit of powdery mildew on them. Um, there's absolutely no reason at all why courgettes, um, courgette foliage shouldn't be composted. Um, they are mostly water, so don't expect a lot of compost. At it um, rots down uh, very nicely. And there's something satisfying about gathering up courgette plants on your fork and carrying them off to the compost bin. I don't know what it is, but um, they just seem to sit on the fork very nicely. You get a real sense of achievement. We have an email here from E. Lamont from uh, Tyne and Weir. She says, I've had a very disappointing crop from my dwarf French beans this year. They're purple dwarf beans. I grew them around a wigwam, but they reached only about a foot high and produced very few beans of a small size. I fed occasionally, but they were also growing next to the courgettes and tomatoes. How can I get a better crop of purple beans next year? Well, earlier on, it was quite a tough season for um, all the sort of beans, things including the runners as well, and because it was hot and dry and the temperatures sort of soared, we didn't get any rain and a lot of them really sort of struggled to get going and start cropping well. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether um, they almost sort of didn't really get going. Guy, what do you also think? Because I'm sure you had plenty down the allotment that you'd have been trying with this year. Well, Mrs. Lamont has perplexed me somewhat here because they were saying about dwarf French beans and dwarf beans only grow about a foot tall, 18 inches at most. That is in a metric 30 to 45 centimetres. Um, so and they're growing up a wigwam so they're never going to scramble up a wigwam of let's say 1.8 metres or 6 feet. Uh, so I think um, if you're going to grow dwarf beans I would kind of dispense with the wigwam. There's some excellent climbing French beans that can be grown up wigwams. Um, But this brings us to the next thing, uh, which is warmth. And 
famously, French beans require high light levels and high warmth. They're called French for a particular reason. They grow well in France, which is well to the south of the United Kingdom, and uh, has much higher light levels and warmth. And once you get into northern districts, uh, French beans become very difficult. Certainly our friends at Harlow Car Gardens um, have um, traditionally, in the long term, found them rather difficult to grow in Yorkshire. That's RHS Harlow Car Gardens um, near Harrogate. Um, so I think that under the circumstances, stick with dwarf French beans. I'm inclined to start them off indoors, if you can, um, in cell trays or small pots. Plant them out um, as soon as the risk of frost has gone. If you can cover them with horticultural fleece or better still cloches, so very much the better. And uh, I don't think you can expect um, late season French beans. I think it's best to stick with main season ones that should come in uh, reasonably early July, August. They do need quite a lot of fertiliser, so keep up with your feeding. And you should get a better crop of purple beans. Try and keep the cloches and the fleece on as long as possible. French beans are self-fertile, so they don't need pollinating insects. Uh, so it's quite in order to keep them covered, unlike runner beans, of course, which must have... Um, pollinating insects and uh, with that bit of extra help I don't see why you shouldn't have some dwarf French beans and the purple ones the people who haven't seen them really are purple they're absolutely delightful and there's one called purple teepee whose actually beans are held on stalks above the foliage and it's a splendidly ornamental plant of course to enjoy that you'll have to take the fleece off but by then the fleece will have done its good work when you cook them um, I tend to microwave them and that keeps at least some of the purple colour. If you boil them, the purple colour's gone in a flash. But of course, um, microwaving just enough to uh, tenderise them uh, will preserve their delicate and delicious flavour. Yeah, I mean, normally dwarf French beans, you'd grow them in rows, perhaps a, a foot or 18 inches apart, both the rows and the plants, um, and uh, keep them weed-free. And the main thing I find is they, they hate cold winds, so I don't tend to plant them out too early. And uh, ideally, a bit of windbreak netting on the side from where the wind's blowing is a, a great boost to early uh, growth. I mean, both French and runner beans uh, certainly can get knocked about and set back by cold winds early in the season. So normally it doesn't necessarily pay to be in too much of a hurry and wait for the warmer weather and try and give a little bit of protection. And S. Robinson has emailed him and uh, said, I'd like to grow, like to try growing peas next year. What is a good variety and method to get a successful crop, please? Uh, I, have a, I have three raised beds in a north-facing London garden. Tony, what's your feeling about uh, peas in a London garden? Well, you know, a small wigwam or two of uh, peas, I, I guess, are worth worth trying there. North-facing, well, hopefully it's getting at least some direct sun during the day. Um, ideally, some nice rich soil in the beds and uh, a bit of manure or bag manure added will be a benefit. Um, for peas, I tend to like growing the monge too and the sugar snap types where you're harvesting the whole pot and using them. And at the other extreme, um, I tend to grow varieties such as Telegraph and Champion of England. The only problem there is that as they grow to about three metres or ten feet, you do need some uh, tall legs or at least some step ladders to harvest them. But uh, they seem to grow very well on my uh, rather chalky, loamy soil. At great interest, don't really yield better than 
the modern varieties, which of course dwarf her and are designed for easy picking and high productivity in small space. And I guess there, Guy, you, you'll have some suggestions for some of the the real must-have peas at the moment. Oh, you're absolutely right, Tony. I'm a huge pea fan, and I grow a very great many peas um, on the, my sandy soil here in Surrey. And uh, amongst the Mange 2 ones, uh, the best one that's worked really well for me is one called Kennedy that has uh, very heavy crops of uh, flat-podded, tender peas that can be stir-fried, for example, uh, microwaved, uh, used in salads, seasoned, a delicious pea. The sugar um, snap ones, which have thick, fleshy pods, my favourite among that is Cascadia, uh, which has ones about the size of your thumb and uh, heavy crops over reasonably long periods. The important thing is to remember that peas, unlike, say, runner beans, um, only flower for a short period. So whenever um, peas are two inches tall, if you're going to have more than one crop, it's time to... That's two inches is the same as uh, 50 millimetres, of course. If you're going to have more than one crop, that's the time to sow your successional crop. And you can sow peas from February um, until June. For ordinary peas, um, peas you're going to pod, uh, you have to remember that each plant only produces a few pods. Each pod has got 8 to 12 um, peas in it, so you do need quite a lot of plants for a good picking. And early ones are especially... Uh, good. We do a lot of trials here at the Royal Horticultural Society Gardens in Wisley and a few years ago we had a, a splendid trial of early peas. There's one called Twinkle uh, that is semi-leafless so it supports itself by tendrils um, and that's an exceptionally fine flavoured heavy yielding one and there's another called Misty um, that's got proper leaves so it helps to keep down the weeds and again that's um, dwarf like Twinkle. They just need a bit of support from a few twigs um, if indeed that, and uh, they're easy to grow. One of the things about uh, raised beds is they're rather droughty, and uh, London is a quite a dry region, and droughty peas and dry regions means powdery mildew, where the leaves develop a white granular covering that's um, very fine, and that goes into the pods and generally destroys the crop. But there's a very good variety called Ambassador uh, that has got a high level of resistance to powdery mildew and is also recommended by the Royal Horticultural Society. In London, uh, the winters are quite mild. You've got raised beds that's going to help the drainage. So you can try growing Oregon Sugar Pod, uh, which is a Monge 2 pea that's exceptionally hardy. Maybe it's not the sweetest pea in the world, um, but it's exceptionally hardy. And uh, sown in October in London, all other things being equal, you'll get a crop next June. So Oregon sugar pods is one of the few peas that can be overwintered. And peas can also be incredibly ornamental. You can get uh, purple podded peas that are, uh, if you pick them young, uh, not exactly the tastiest, sweetest pea, but they look good uh, microwave to keep their, their purple uh, coloration uh, in salads and uh, p- things like that. Now, north-facing vegetable beds are not always ideal because really you want nice open sunshine, but they do have a certain value. And this was reflected in old wall gardens where you'd often have uh, a north-facing border along the wall. And it that's obviously shadier, it's cooler. So you, you do find that the crops come later. So with things like peas and lettuce, it was traditionally a way that you could put some on the sunny side 
and some on the, the shady side and it would extend your crop. So as well as doing successional sowing, if you really like things like peas, it's worth putting some in the sun, do your successions there as well, and then a few successions in the shade and you'll extend the life of your fresh pea crops through the summer. But as Guy mentioned, they do need to be well watered because that's the other thing in summer that peas really need to do well. The RHS Advice Team. If you're not already a member of the RHS, why not find out more about its benefits? Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Next, it's the latest in our series of discussions of garden essentials, equipment and techniques to help you get the best performance from your plants. Today, my colleague Guy Barter from the RHS Gardening Advice Team joins Wisley's Glasshouse team leader, Peter Jones, to look through his essential toolkit for successful greenhouse and houseplant cultivation. This afternoon, I've come down to the glasshouses to meet Peter Jones, who manages the, the work in here. And Peter's going to take us through our next set of gardening essentials, which are the things that he needs to, to carry with him and have handy every day to do his exacting work and keeping the glasshouses looking good and full, full of healthy plants. Right, so what I'll do is I'm going to take you through our kind of essential toolbox. And now every member of my team has one of these. And it has all the tools and bits of equipment that we use uh, to complete our day-to-day -day jobs and tasks in the glasshouse. And it's a useful uh, kit that if you wanted to have something at home so that you were prepared for every eventuality in your day-to-day -day gardening. So I'll go through what I've got in here at the moment. So, so the first thing that uh, comes to my vision where in my toolbox is I have a set of white plant labels and a label pen. Now, this is a kind of essential kit for anyone in the glasshouse, and it can have all the vital information that you should need uh, when growing in a glasshouse. So importantly, you've got your name, but you can also put on there such you can also put on there such important information such as propagation dates. Uh, which and also where you've got the plant from so really useful information when you're gardening in the glasshouse and what else have we got here also in my kit I've got a little uh, single bladed propagation knife now this is what I do all my propagation with in the glasshouse uh, whether this be semi-ripe cuttings or um, soft tip um, a very useful knife uh, and also useful to have in your pocket at all time when you're gardening whether that's cutting string or doing any kind of little fiddly horticultural jobs. Also got some little scissor-like snips. Now these snips are very useful, different to having secateurs, uh, because they're quite a very fine tip. Um, they're very useful for doing deadheading jobs. We use them with great effect when deadheading our orchids. We also use them when deadheading fuchsias. So this is a great job to be doing at this time of year, to make sure you keep your fuchsias flowering for as long as possible. Uh, also in here we've got a little eyeglass, a uh, very useful bit of kit, uh, especially in a glass house where you can get lots of pests and beasties. So this uh, you can keep in the box and then for looking, say if you have something like red spider mite or something which is very fine and if your eyesight's not brilliant like mine then you can spot some pests underneath the leaves. One of the things I noticed in your, your toolkit, Peter, is, is string and wire for presumably for tying things in or for, or for mending things. Um, why do you have wire? Do you find that you need both wire and string? I, yeah, so I, in, in the box I've got normal, um, I say it's three-ply garden twine. Now that's, we use that for all our general kind of staking and tying jobs and it's great to, great piece of, uh, it's great to have that in your toolbox just for using for general gardening. The wire 
We use for all manner of things, um, not necessarily working with the plants, but it's also useful, say, if you wanted to make a quick, impromptu cane tripod for growing things up or securing um, canes. So because it's quite fine, it's not always ideal for having our, uh, we're tying plant material, but it is useful for tying canes uh, and other kinds of garden infrastructure together. I'm particularly interested in your toothbrush that you carry around if you do suffer from gum disease. Well, I, I do worry about bad breath, but not. I wouldn't use this one as this is kind of my. This is used mainly for pest treatment, actually. If, for example, I've got an orchid or a cacti, and I've noticed it's got a bit of scale or mealybug coming, a little a toothbrush is a great thing to have ready you can dip it in a meth solution especially for when dealing with mealybug and because it's got a nice long handle you can get into those difficult and hard to reach areas and just apply uh, say methylated spirit to your mealybug just to treat any localized pests i'm particularly interested by the fact your toolkit is so comprehensive i would guess you couldn't possibly get through your day's work if you had to keep trotting off and finding things yeah, that's a, a very good reason for having it all in one toolkit is when you're busy trying to get on with your job, you don't want to go back into, to, this, to your tool shed or, or where we keep all the rest of our gear. So you've got everything there to hand with you when you're busy working on a job. So it comes out with me in the morning uh, and then it gets put away at the end of the day, uh, knowing that I've got all the kit there that I need to get on with. Yeah, I mean, out of your comprehensive professional toolkit, what kind of things would you advise home gardeners to have to hand for their looking after their glass houses and conservatories and the plants in them? I think uh, essential bits to have in a toolbox at home would be a good sharp pair of secateurs. I, so I have a pair of secateurs and snips, but if you can get away with just a nice pair of secateurs, a good ball of string, uh, a label and a label pen I always think are essential because you always need to be ready there to write a label just when you're about to forget that name so it's always used to have, useful to have those to hand and a couple of pairs of good gardening gloves um, uh, those are kind of the key things that I'd recommend that everyone has with them I've got other stuff in my toolbox like trowels and hand rakes just because of the nature of my work but those few items I think are very worthwhile having to hand <laughs> Again, you can find more information on all aspects of gardening on the RHS website. Here, you can also find links to our archive of RHS gardening podcasts, so you can catch up on any episodes of our Gardening Essentials series that you may have missed. Visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. So, that's nearly all for this RHS gardening podcast. There's just time for details of some of the exciting RHS events and attractions coming up in the next few weeks. Encourage your little ones to become budding gardeners. Little Acorns at RHS Garden Hyde Hall on the 7th of October is a fun and informal club which will provide a wealth of ideas to help stimulate an interest in gardening. Normal garden admission applies, plus an additional cash payment of £2 per child. Join Nigel Pinhorn of Devon Nature Walks at RHS Garden Rosemore on the 9th of October and find out all about fungi on a guided walk around the garden and woodlands at Rosemore. Places cost £13 for RHS members and £23 for non-members. Brush up your photography skills at our Photographing the Colours and Textures of Autumn event at RHS Garden Harlow Carr on the 16th of October. 
This workshop is designed for photographers of all levels of ability and will also appeal to you if you have an interest in using photographs as a basis for other visual or creative arts. Feeling a bit seedy? Then come to RHS Garden Wisley on the 10th and 11th of October for Seeds on Show, which will be a seed sale and seed displays by the RHS Seed Team, Alpine Garden Society, Cyclamen Society and Plant Heritage. And finally, the 29th of October sees the arrival of the John McLeod Annual Lecture at the Lindley Hall in London. Held every autumn, this influential RHS lecture invites prominent speakers to underline important horticultural issues. This year, Professor Stephen Blackmore, CBE, speaks on Gardening Planet Earth, Sustainable Horticulture. Admission is free to RHS members, but places must be booked in advance. For more information, see rhs.org.uk forward slash McLeod Lecture. Full details of all events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. So that's all for this RHS gardening podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the RHS gardening podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.